Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. If you listened to our 2024 Republican primary draft earlier this week, you probably heard some confusion and conflict about the direction of the GOP. Yes, it's locked out of power today, but American parties rarely spend long in the wilderness before they find their way back to Congress or the White House. When that happens, what form will the Republican Party and the conservative movement take? Is there room for a more optimistic vision from the likes of Tim Scott? Will the party double down on Trump himself? Or maybe leave Trump but keep the Trumpism in the form of Ron DeSantis? Is the establishment so toxic that even Nikki Haley is persona non grata? According to author Matthew Continetti, to understand where the right is and where it's heading, you have to understand where it's been. And he lays out decades of conservative history in his new book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Continetti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has written about the right at the Weekly Standard, National Review, and is founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you cover a lot of ground in your book, which we will get to. But before we dive right in, I actually want to ask if we can define our terms. Are the right, conservatism, and the Republican Party the same thing? No. So the Republican Party is a political party. It is an institutional structure. It could be filled by its membership, and its membership could go in a variety of directions. The conservative movement is a political formation that developed uh, really in the aftermath of the Second World War and was committed to rolling back the welfare state at home and Soviet communism abroad. The right is a much broader category of figures and groups and institutions who oppose the left. And the history of the right really stretches back to the French Revolution. Um, the history of the right in America is, is long and enduring. And in my book, I cover the past hundred years of the right trying to show that what we have come to view as American conservatism, that post-war movement I mentioned a moment ago, was in fact just one form the right can take in America. And that there are much broader constellation of forces, some of which uh, are opposed to modern liberalism or progressivism, others of which are opposed to classical liberalism and even look on America as somehow ill-founded. But so I would say that the right is a very broad category. The conservative movement is a more defined political formation. And then the Republican Party is just an institutional apparatus that has come to be seen by conservatives as the main vehicle uh, for our, their ideas over the last half century. I think, though, that in common parlance, these things get somewhat confused, right? So I think Trump absolutely defines himself as a conservative and his biggest supporters amongst lawmakers and amongst voters also describe themselves as conservative. You know, for most of my life, conservative has meant what you sort of described as this post-war movement, which involved a triad of national defense hawkishness, traditional Christian values, and supply-side economics. Of course, Trump's vision of politics is more isolationist, economic protectionist. There's a bit of a looser moral code. And he's even, you know, rejected constitutional self-rule in many ways. So 
who gets to decide what conservatism is? Because I think that most of the Republican Party wouldn't necessarily agree with you that conservatism is only that triad or nothing. Right. Well, what I try to do in my book is distinguish between American conservatism, which is oriented toward the American founding, grounded in the principles of the Declaration of Independence, in the political institutions, the checks and balances, federalism of the Constitution, and then also agrees more broadly with the political thought represented in the Federalist Papers, kind of the origins of the American political tradition. Well, that's not the entirety of the right. The right is a broader category. And so when you see figures on the American right today begin talking very fondly about Viktor Orban in Hungary or prior to the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, seeing Vladimir Putin as some type of figure who fights on behalf of traditional religion against cultural progressivism, that's not necessarily American conservatism. <laughs> that's, that's oriented toward the European continent. So what I'm trying to do is to say in my book that it's a much more complicated picture. Even within American conservatism, as I just described it, there were competing ideas, different factions. There were libertarians or traditionalists, neoconservatives, later there were paleoconservatives. And so my book is really a way to think about the right as a very complex, multifaceted phenomena that changes over time. And you ask the question, well, who gets to define what a conservative is? Well, I think that definition comes about by whichever faction of the right is most powerful at a given moment. Then it defines what conservatism is. For a long time, the faction of the conservative movement, what I described as that post-war political formation, really led by figures like William F. Buckley Jr., Barry Goldwater, and Ronald Reagan. They had a very defined vision of what American conservatism was, and it was represented in the so-called three-legged stool that you made reference to. That's not the only vision anymore. And there's been a competition that's been going on for several decades now. That form of American conservatism is in the process of being displaced, I believe, by a much more populist nationalist right. And this is essentially the framework for your book, which is that this conflict that we're seeing today on the right between the populists and the intellectual right or the elites is one that dates back at least 100 years. I'm curious, does 2016 mark the first time in the American rights history that populism has fully eclipsed elitism within the GOP? I, I think you can find uh, previous upsurges. My mind is immediately drawn to the McCarthy period, which I discuss at some length in my book, where Joe McCarthy, as a populist demagogue, really became the central figure on the American right between 1950 and 1954. And indeed, many of the founders of the post-war conservative movement, like William F. Buckley Jr., supported McCarthy, defended him, believed that even if he got some of the details wrong, as they would say at the time, and still to this day, some say, he nevertheless had the right instincts. Actually, language that's very similar to right-wing defenses of Trump today. So McCarthy was a leader of a populist right politics. And the conservative elites, such as they were at that time, because they were kind of on the fringes of American politics at that time, they backed McCarthy. But when McCarthy fell, culminating in his censure in 1954, and then basically kind of crippled himself through alcohol, he dies in 1957, he leaves the scene. And the populists existed in a tension with conservatives, sometimes in cooperation 
I think is visible in the presidency of Ronald Reagan, the two forces cooperating. But it's really in 2016, the grassroots right says, you know what, we don't need an establishment. The establishment is counter to our interests and aims. It has a different agenda. It hasn't gotten us anywhere. So we need a figure from outside the system, someone who is going to be able to punch through all of the obstacles to achieving our goals. And that figure is Donald Trump. And that's the first time where a populist not only wins the nomination of the Republican Party, but becomes the president. Why did Trump succeed where other populists failed? It's a great question. I, I think sometimes we overrate the measure of his success. I don't need to remind a 538 audience, you know, Trump only won 45% of the total vote in the Republican primary. So he gets by on a plurality, mainly because he's able to combine a, a core support which is very devoted to him personally, the people that he used to say, you know, he could go out and shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would still defend him. With enough support from other Republicans, conservative and even moderate Republicans, that he was able to cobble together this plurality victory against a very divided, numerous field. Then in the general election, he wins, but he wins kind of because of a fluke. I mean, somewhere in the ballpark of 30,000 votes, 40,000 votes among three states gives him a sizable electoral college victory, but he still wins fewer popular votes as a percentage than Mitt Romney had when Romney lost in 2012. So we sometimes, I think, overestimate Trump's victory. Why was he able to do it? Well, as I say, in the primary, he was able to do it because he had that devoted support and he also has incredible political talents, in my view, for identifying issues, for sizing up the weaknesses of his opponents. And he was talking about things earlier than other Republicans were. And he was able to position himself as the outsider candidate at a moment when the GOP was desperate for an outsider to lead it. In the general election, as I said, it's a close run thing. According to the Gallup poll, Donald Trump was the most unpopular major party nominee in the history of the poll. But he had the luck of running against the second most unpopular <laughs> nominee in the history of the Gallup poll. And I think in the eighth year of a Democratic presidency, the electorate was looking for change and independent voters would rather go with the businessman that they didn't know and that had you know, no experience in government than with uh, Hillary Clinton, who they knew very well and had very defined attitudes towards. So it sounds like in there that you're not crediting Trump's ideas, which, as I mentioned, are more isolationist, protectionist, you know, don't cue as closely to traditional Christian values as Reagan's conservatism. If it's not about the ideas, then why have those ideas had so much purchase within the Republican Party in the six years since? Well, a few things. One is Trump did run on an agenda in 2016 in both the primary and the general elections. That agenda was driven really on the issue of immigration, which Trump realized was the wedge issue between the Republican establishment and the conservative intellectual elite and the grassroots populists who comprise most of the votes of the Republican Party. So that idea of, you know, build the wall and Mexico will pay for it, that actually was a major factor in his rise. He used his opposition to the war in Iraq as a way to define himself against the Bush dynasty and defeat the latest iteration of that dynasty, Jeb Bush, who is his major competition, at least it, it seemed at the outset, for the nomination. It's not, though, until he becomes a president that his worldview, his interests, and his attitudes begin permeating the Republican Party. Presidents are very important, and they're especially important to their party. And they set the agenda, 
they define the alternatives, and they set an example. And by the end of his term, you could see that not only had his ideas about the world and how it worked influenced and shaped much of the Republican Party, but you had new candidates who were coming to the fore who were mimicking Trump in his behavior and his persona, people like Lauren Boebert, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then on a more establishment level, figures like Ron DeSantis. This gets to a main question I have in reading your book. So much of your history of conservatism and the right is told through the perspectives of intellectual thinkers, people who are writing in magazines. Here at 538, we think a lot about public opinion. And so I'm curious what the relationship between these intellectuals who crafted the conservatism that loomed large for 30 years in American life, are these intellectuals responding to public sentiment, shaping it, disconnected from it? Because I think one of the criticisms after Trump's rise was sort of that this conservative intellectualism that had so much purchase in the party didn't actually seem to be what was motivating its voters. Well, I would say that the intellectuals have had, uh, and I think this is true, by the way, of liberal intellectuals in the Democratic Party, they've had a strained relationship with the both party and its officials, as well as the broader electorate. I do think that Republicans have found themselves in power mainly as a result of democratic overreach, and that the function of the intellectuals was to provide ideas and policies that Republicans could implement once populist discontent put them in a position of authority. And so the relationship between conservatism and populism is an ambivalent one throughout the history that I tell in my book, where conservatism has usually viewed itself as uh, against populism, against uh, mobs, um, wanting to mediate popular sentiment through constitutional processes, viewing uh, itself conservatism as kind of a refined or mannered approach, gentlemanly way of dealing with the world. However, what the early conservative intellectuals found was that the audiences most receptive to their ideas weren't their fellow elites who were liberal. It was working class populist voters. And this is present in William F. Buckley Jr.'s run for the New York mayoralty in 1965. Buckley enters that contest, runs for mayor to prove that conservatives have ideas about how a city ought to be run. But also his target is John Lindsay, the Republican congressman who is a liberal Republican who is running for mayor as he believed, Lindsay believed, and many believed, as a stepping stone to the presidency. Well, Buckley aims at Lindsay, but he ends up taking out the Democrat, Abe Beam, <laughs> mainly because Buckley's arguments and personality and ideas attract much of the working class white ethnic base of the Democratic Party. So Buckley wins 13% of the vote in 1965, but it's enough to deny the Democratic, the mayoralty. So beginning in that period, you see that the most receptive audience for conservative ideas is actually the populist grassroots. And this carries on uh, throughout my history until I'd say the last 15 years or so, when the grassroots said the intellectuals and the Republican establishment is so removed from us, so ensconced in a bubbles in Washington, D.C. and New York City, that we don't need them anymore. All we need is to fight and fight constantly. And uh, that's what they've been doing. Yeah, I want to pursue that sort of trend a little bit more when it comes to the relationship between, you know, white ethnic voters, the working class and the elites within the party. 
But first, how did the elite, as you describe it, during the Bush years and during the sort of McCain and Romney nominations, become so detached from where the party's base was? For one thing, uh, you know, they had been in power for a long time. Uh, So with Reagan coming to power in 1981, you see the beginnings of a Republican conservative governing class, people who are based in Washington, D.C., who work in government or in the think tanks or in the media, the conservative media, basically function as a a kind of elite uh, throughout the Reagan presidency, the two Bushes, and during Newt Gingrich's Republican Congresses of the 1990s. So how did they become detached? Well, I think one of the writers I discuss at several points in my book, Charles Murray, did the best work on this when he came out somewhere around 2011 or so with what he called the bubble quiz. He asked a few questions that anyone could do online. And depending on your answer, you found just how ensconced in a bubble were you? How removed were you from the way that most Americans were actually experiencing everyday life? And I think that was true of people across the political spectrum, including the Republican governing class based in Washington, D.C., which comprises some of the most affluent counties in the United States. So it was a historical process. It was also, though, an argument about ideas in the direction of the party. There's always been a populist element uh, on the right in America, certainly since the 1950s. There's always been, in the post-Cold War era, so the last 30 or so years, elements on the American right who want to return to the pre-New Deal, pre-World War II emphasis on immigration restriction, industrial protection, and non-interventionism. Those forces were basically suppressed for much of the history I tell in my book. It's only as a result of, I believe, missteps in George W. Bush's presidency on immigration in particular, and also simmering discontent with the war in Iraq, that the conservative governing class was delegitimized in the eyes of its own voters. Of course, I think what you think of the right today and how it got here depends a lot on where a person may sit on the political spectrum, both left-right, but also within the right. And you address this in your book in talking about this complicated push and pull between populists and intellectual forces. And I think that there are a lot of people on the left who would say, given where this has all ended up, it's actually not complicated, that it's a movement rooted in the supremacy of a certain kind of American, white, straight, Christian, disproportionately male, and that the grander ideas were the elites dressing up the movement, but that the appeal was never actually the intellectual stuff. How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think uh, most voters are motivated by Hayek or Michael Oakeshott or any of these conservative intellectuals who populate my history. I think they're motivated by conditions on the ground. And I think that the, the right success, as I said earlier, tends to be during moments of liberal overreach. I think that reducing the right to the type of algorithm of identity that you kind of laid out there is simplifying it and also blinds the left to its own weaknesses. Because the truth is, there's one thing that I can say pretty clearly that emerges from my history is that voters don't like inflation. They don't like inflation combined with recession. And when the economy starts turning south in the 1970s, 
and inflation takes off, the right is the main beneficiary. Understanding that process requires something other than just wondering about the privileges of Republican voters, right? I think that there are real concerns that the right is addressing at any given moment. By just simply reducing it to status and identity, we blind ourselves to those concerns. That's the first thing I would say. I'd also say just simplifying things is a trend on throughout the political spectrum today. And if I do have one goal in my, my work, it is to, to kind of bring back the idea that complexity and nuance are important, especially in intellectual life. And so we can hear the rationales that, that you laid out, but let's try to see if there's more to be said. There's more work to be done. And that's what I'm trying to do in my book, is kind of layer on additional explanations to the left's more reductive ones. You mentioned that one of the values you see of populism is bringing to the fore issues, ideas that elites themselves can't see or don't see. And this maybe reminds me of a conflict in your book of sorts in which William F. Buckley Jr. rejects the blandness of the Republican Party under Eisenhower because he didn't basically like that Ike was okay with expanding New Deal programs, ultimately because he didn't have a conservative alternative to these liberal programs. And to me, in reading it, it was somewhat reminiscent of the fights over Obamacare. You know, we had at least four or five election cycles dedicated to it. In the end, there was never a clear conservative alternative. And once Republicans were in power, they didn't actually repeal it. And so when it comes to some of these income inequality, health disparity kinds of issues that might appeal more to populists than elites, what is the alternative conservative vision for safety net programs? Well, just on Obamacare, they didn't repeal it, but they came pretty close. As I recall, they came one vote uh, close to uh, passing um, the Cassidy-Graham legislation, which would have been a vehicle to undo uh, Obamacare and eventually replace it. They also changed Obamacare quite drastically uh, during the four years of the Trump presidency via administrative means. And some of those changes, in fact, the Biden administration has been attempting to reverse I think you're absolutely right that during the Eisenhower era, the conservatives had not done the work to provide public policy alternatives to the New Deal. And you're absolutely right. Buckley defined himself in opposition to this popular Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, precisely because Eisenhower was maintaining the New Deal structures of government and also because Eisenhower had not adopted the rights policy of rollback of communism. He, he had, was basically maintaining the policy of containment that had begun under Harry Truman. When it comes to an issue like healthcare, there were a variety of different alternatives to replace Obamacare with a more consumer-driven health system that had competition and choice. But you're absolutely correct to say that the Republicans never rallied around one. In fact, there's kind of an uncomfortable, they were uncomfortable dealing with the topic at all. There is kind of a, a problematic about the American right, which is since it has defined itself against the New Deal and has sought to basically return to a kind of pre-New Deal vision of the federal government's role in our society, it's not very good at coming up with public policies at the federal level. It takes a lot of effort. And in fact, in my story that I tell in the book, it's not really until the movement of the first wave and second wave of neoconservatives who are liberal intellectuals in the Democratic Party who go into the Republican Party that you actually have these concrete policy ideals 
I, I would also say Milton Friedman, the libertarian thinker, was very good at coming up with um, alternate public policies, some of them more successful than others, some of them more popular than others. But uh, it, is a, it is a problem for the right in that it, it needs to always be reminded that it, it can't just tear down the New Deal structures of government. It has to have some way of maintaining the safety net in a way that also preserves uh, freedom and, and um, choice and competition. I mean, it sounds like the answer today is to cede a lot of economic ground to liberals, right? I mean, Trump basically said, I'm not privatizing Social Security. You know, I'm, I'm going to spend as much money or more money on health care as any other president. I want to pour money into infrastructure spending. You know, not everything he said he did, but at least rhetorically, he sounded far more liberal on economics than any of his competition and any recent Republican nominee for that matter. Is that the answer? Well, it's Trump's answer. I don't know if it's the answer for me. I do think that the terrain of our politics has shifted. I think you're absolutely right to point out that we're not arguing over the size and scope of government. We're, We're arguing over something different now. We're arguing over what it means to be an American. Who gets to become an American? Under what conditions? What are they taught? How do we raise Americans? How do we view our history, our symbols, our country? These are much more visceral issues that don't actually have anything to do with tax rates or the debt or deficit. And they're the issues that Trump focused on, especially toward the end of his presidency. And they're the sort of cultural issues that are powering, I think, a building Republican wave uh, this election cycle. So it seems to me that at least for the near future, the conversation on the right is going to be less about the government and more about the cultural power of the left and how to combat it. For someone such as myself, who considers himself a limited government conservative, while I understand why these debates are happening, I do you know, regret that we're not talking about relimiting government and um, increasing freedom. I know this might go in contrast to the premise of your book, but does that mean that it's no longer particularly useful to describe American politics as on a left-right axis? Because you can find left and right positions on both sides of the political aisle. And as you said, the main arguments don't actually seem to be ones that play out on any kind of traditional left-right divide. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point, and one that I'd have to think about more, because I've been spending a fair amount of time thinking about this in relation to the French election, and, uh, and, and also in relation to what's happening in Florida. There still does seem to be a left and a right. There still do seem to be people on the left who have a more vision of liberation, of release, or transcendence of inherited institutions, right? And, and where your unchosen obligations. And then there's a right that seems to have a much more constrained view of human potentiality and also, you know, um, protective of these inherited social formations like the family, want to preserve the church and its autonomy and its, and its role in the public square. So I do think they're still left and right. They're just expressing themselves in different ways. We're not fighting over government anymore. Uh, we're fighting about whose values will be supreme. I want to talk a little bit about the electoral consequences here before we wrap up, of course, being 538. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As we have watched this competition between the elitist and populist side of the American right play out, how has the Republican coalition changed? And following on that, when would you say it was at its highest point of electoral strength and lowest point? Well, I think its highest point would have to be 1984 and Ronald Reagan's re-election. And the two elections surrounding that, 80 and 88, was also a huge just kind of the apex, I think, of, of the 20th century Republican Party and also of American conservatism. I would say that the fact of the Cold War and also the association in the electorate's judgment of overreach and defeat in Vietnam with Democratic presidents, thus handing the Republicans an edge on national security issues, which was only increased during the Iranian hostage crisis, of 1979-1980, that helped power that Republican strength that I mentioned. And here's, again, another reason why I don't think we can just pathologize the American right, because, you know, those were real issues, those were real events, Vietnam, the Iranian hostage crisis, that, you know, can't be simplified into an identity politics uh, framework. I do think that how the Republican Party has changed is related, actually, to its height, which is that when the Cold War ended, when communism was removed as an external threat that really defined American politics for close to a century, the Republicans lost their advantage on national security. It wasn't as salient. They gain it after 9-11, but then they lose it again because of the way the wars were conducted. And you see a kind of the trickle of white voters without college degrees, which had been building since the late 60s from the, from the Nixon hard hats through the Reagan Democrats, that trickle turns into a river. And the Republican Party changes from a party that typically was 
uh, composed of college graduates, you know, the country club elite, the chamber of commerce types, into a party that is much more populist and much more working class as defined through educational attainment. Many of these people without college degrees are quite well off. Um, they have successful businesses. But if we view class through the frame of education, they're outside of the, you know, kind of the meritocratic industrial chain uh, of, of college and university. So that transformation was huge. And I think it was a main contributor to the rise of Donald Trump. You've described yourself as a limited government conservative. So I probably have some sense of where you want the movement to go from here, where you want the right to go from here. But when you think about things dispassionately, where do you think it goes from here? Well, I think right now, uh, Donald Trump remains the central figure in the Republican Party and in the politics of the right. I think he transformed both institutions. It's still hard for me to gauge how influential he is. And, you know, we're, we're recording this at the end of April. I think some of the primaries in May will go a long way to telling us just how much it matters that Trump has singled out or endorsed a candidate. It may be that that endorsement is not worth as much as we think at the moment. I, I don't know. But I think we're still living in the Trump era. And a lot rides on what he decides to do in the next two years. Uh, a lot rides on conditions in the country, whether he is able to somehow change public attitudes toward him, something that's very hard to do. <laughs> I, have my, I wrote my previous book on Sarah Palin, so I'm familiar with this. Once the public makes a judgment on you, it is very hard to, to change that. And so uh, how the Trump era ends, it will end, but we don't know when and we don't know how. Why are there so few Republican leaders trying to wrest control of the party from Trump? I think the reason is the Trump voters. Having had the experience of being estranged from your voting base, Republican leaders in the Trump era don't want to be estranged from their voters. They want to be with their voters. They don't view themselves as representatives who are somehow, you know, different from their voters, who have to take the voters' interests and ideas and means of expression into account, but but also have their own views that they, they want to inject into politics. But they're simply meant to be the tribunes of their voters. In fact, this attitude also has affected intellectual life on the right. Individual opinion, uh, dissenting opinion, is attacked for, for being weak, for you know not towing to the line uh, of fighting the left. So I think that's part of it. The second reason is the Republicans still don't have definitive proof that they could go against Trump and win. And as I say, maybe they'll have some signs in the coming months that that's possible, at least not to go up against Trump as in the way that an Evan McMullen or a Liz Cheney does or an Adam Kinzinger does, but simply not agree with Trump that the 2020 election is stolen or was stolen and that Trump needs to be somehow you know, reinstated as president which is a ludicrous idea, but that that's why Trump unendorsed Mo Brooks in Alabama. It's like so Well, at least that's why he says he unendorsed yeah, Mo that's Brooks. That's why he said well he said well he, no, well he said first he goes, Well, Mo Brooks went woke, which is just as absurd. Right. He unendorsed him because he tanked in the polls. Well of course. Ultimately. Of course. But that shows that Trump is also very concerned that he needs to continually project an image of strength. As long as that image is sustained within the ranks of the GOP, then you won't see Republican elites challenge him. If that image weakens, however, then I do think more people will, will, go, will move to the position that Donald Trump was a great 
president. We support Trump and what he did, but it's just time to move and find a new figure. That type of pivot is going to be very hard as long as Donald Trump wants the conversation to be about him. And as we know, Donald Trump always wants the conversation to be about him. Sure. And sort of even in his absence, it's very likely that much of his vision remains. That brings us to my final question here. You know, we've been talking about American ideas, conservative American ideas. I think one of America's most famous ideas is that people should govern themselves. After the 2020 election, Trump rejected constitutional self-governance. I'm curious, to what extent will the right continue to reject that American idea going forward, with or without Trump? Well, uh, Trump wanted to overturn the results of the election, but thank God there were people within his administration who disagreed, uh, specifically Vice President Pence. And there were Republicans uh, elsewhere throughout the country who disagreed, like Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, who, who may well win his primary against a Trump-selected challenger. So I would say that that argument has not been settled, that there are Republicans who continue to believe in the Constitution uh, and who continue to believe that the institutions and norms of our democracy when it comes to the peaceful transfer of power ought to be respected. But it's a fight and it's a contest and um, Trump, he he wants to win. And uh, if he doesn't win fairly, he will try to find another way and he will listen to people who suggest other means And uh, that's something that I think American conservatives need to guard against and need to reject. And if they they don't reject it, it's their loss and it's American democracy's loss as well. I mean, do you see it as that existential that this question facing conservatives, the right, the Republican Party right now is existential to American democracy? I, I don't know. I think that even if Trump were to succeed in getting Mike Pence to challenge the election as he wanted to do in January of 2021, I think Joe Biden still would have been president. As a conservative, I like civil peace. I like order. I I like the institutions to hold. That's why I'm a conservative. What what I find now on the right, my view is an embattled one. (laughs) And there are many people on the right now who think that America has gone so off track that it's time to look for extra constitutional solutions and to reject ideas of civil peace. And I truly... uh, lament that. I I want us to somehow reassert the center in our political life. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thank you, Matthew, for joining me today. Thank you. Matthew Continetti is the author of the book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. My name is Galen Droop. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director, and Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store, or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.